trauma made me believe that I couldn't have the opportunities to, to become a woman in the fullest sense, whether it's in my body, as my voice, my power, my sexuality, and, and career. The trauma was a huge dampener on everything on top of the cultural codes. And the tremendous pressure from the family to look a certain way, yeah. to be this person who's a doctor, engineer, lawyer. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's so formulaic. Hi, this is uh, Nikhil and Shelly coming to you from Chicago with the Shelly story. We wrote a book and are currently working on a movie about our journeys with mental health, uh, specifically bipolar disorder. As an offshoot of that, we've developed a podcast called The Shelley Story, where we speak to people from a broad variety of backgrounds about diverse issues, most notably mental health. We're very excited to speak to today's guest, Maitreyi Maliana. Uh, we had met her through a mutual connection, uh, Tanushree Sengupta, host of The Desi Condition, on which we had both appeared. Her story just blew me away. I mean, I saw so many common threads in what she's gone through and, and what Shelley and I have been through in our journey that we absolutely just had to have her on the show. So we're very excited that she was uh, willing to uh, share some of her time. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about her background. Uh, Maitre Meliana is a holistic psychotherapist, trauma specialist, women's empowerment and divine feminine teacher, channel award-winning author, musician, sound healer, and speaker. Her mission is to help women heal from trauma, liberate themselves from patriarchy and evolve to their divine selves. She has empowered hundreds of women individually and in workshops and programs to find their voice, truth, soul purpose, and connect with the divine feminine. She is the author of two books, one on spiritual healing, and the other is her memoir of overcoming trauma. It's called Brown Skin Girl, an Indian American woman's magical journey from broken to beautiful. And she lives in the Portland area. So, uh, Maitreyi, it's so great to have you again. If you can uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and your story, maybe beyond uh, what I had shared here. Well, it's really a pleasure to be with, be here with both of you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, um, I mean, essentially, I grew up in India, and uh, my family moved to the U.S. when I was 16, and uh, embarked on, you know, just the the delicious freedom and opportunities of education that are available here. Mm -hmm. um, at 22, very briefly, I fell in love with an American man. And uh, when my family found out, um, they took me back to India saying, if I went back for three months and I still wanted to be with him, they would allow that. But once I was there, they essentially took everything from me, my passport, wallet, green card, everything, and put me under house arrest for a year. Wow. Um, and it was a, re a really dark time. They also took me to a Swami who was just a lot of brainwashing and shaming of, of being sexual, of being a woman, of, be of just following my own freedoms and choosing my body and my life, essentially. Um, so I was severely traumatized after that and uh, was numb. Um, dissociation is one of the outcomes of especially long-term trauma, and I was disconnected from myself. I couldn't feel. Um, so once, even though I, I was able to escape after three years, but even though I was quote unquote physically free, I was still emotionally entrapped. And I didn't know how to return to the 22 year olds I had, I was. Um, and therapy at the time, I was 
unfamiliar with. It wasn't part of the Indian culture, so I didn't really know what it was about. Um, and it would be many years later, um, when I was 39, that I actually decided to leave uh, an emotionally abusive marriage with an Indian man and um, just strike out, leave the family, leave the marriage, leave the culture, because I felt like the culture had just really not done right by me as a woman, you know, and not given me the right support. It was so completely unfair and abusive um, that I just broke from it all and decided to go to graduate school to become a therapist. I had never been in therapy at the time. I had just gone to this free six, um, six week group um, at the YWCA for uh, women who had been sexually abused and met with a counselor for about a month. And that was such an eye-opening experience because it was then that I realized that I wasn't bad, but that I had had, that I'd been abused. And it was a huge eye-opener. And from then on, it's just been this beautiful climb and journey of healing and empowerment, becoming a therapist and then you know, my work and just healing, a lot of personal healing and growth from there. So that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the cultural implications or the cultural aspect of your journey, because I think it's, it's so important. Uh, and as we were talking before, that really plays into the story that Shelley and I put together, which is how much did culture impact our, our identity and our goals and what we really wanted out of life and what we thought of as the best versions of ourselves. Because mm -hmm. I would tell you that what we think about it right now is extremely different from what it was uh, when we got married uh, 21 years ago. So we talk on our podcast, we've talked a lot about the double-edged sword of Indian culture because Obviously, as a group, I think South Asians have done very well in this country. And when you look at the top executives at the top companies, most of them are, uh, a lot of them are Indian. Uh, but then there's also, as we know, there's pressure. There's this impossible standard. There's this, the dark side of the collectivist culture, which is, it's great to have this community. It's great to have friends. It's great to have family who all sort of are on the same, in the same community, the same team. But at the same time, that leads to impossible ideals to live up to. It leads to this need to suppress everything and just put on a happy face and just really live this false life, uh, this avatar that's really not in, in line with reality. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about the cultural aspect and how that played into your journey. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you said. Um, India is a traditional patriarchy. And so we are, we are living or we're sort of steeped in centuries and centuries and generations and generations of patriarchal thinking. And, you know, I know you're speaking as a man, but I think for women, it is hugely detrimental and hugely harmful because there's this sort of code it's not just a social code but there's also a religious code that's on top of that which says a woman is supposed to be obedient you know a woman belongs to her family a family and then to her husband so a woman really essentially never belongs to herself um duty the concept of duty and self-sacrifice 
And these are the stories we sort of get, you know, as children from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, just the women sort of dutifully bowing their heads and following along. Subservient. The subservience, never really choosing themselves. And on the other hand, we have these amazing images of, you know, the powerful goddesses like Kali and Durga and, and queens who are warriors. But there's that just such a gap. And so there isn't that bridge between how does a woman choose herself? There, I, I grew up not knowing I could choose myself. I just, even though I was given a lot of education by my family, it was always so marriage was the end goal. You know, and then once I was numb, I was, I couldn't quite think outside of that. The, the trauma made me believe that I couldn't have what Western women had. Like I literally was not allowed to have the, the opportunities to, to become a woman in the fullest sense, whether it's in my body, as my voice, my power, my sexuality, and, and career as well. I just felt, you know, the trauma was a huge sort of dampener on everything on top of the cultural codes. Um, and the tremendous pressure from the family, like you say, to, mm-hmm. to look a certain way, yeah. to be this person who's a doctor, engineer, lawyer. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's so formulaic, like who who you can be to be accepted by your family and approved of. And now as children, we grow up, like our, our love for us depends on the approval and belonging to our family. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, it's a very deep conditioning that we, we naturally want to, to fit in. We want to belong. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to sort of leave, to break from the group to break right. from the culture because then where is that other group do you, that you join? Because on top of that, there's also looking at other cultures as the other, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like for instance, the West is, can often be considered a dangerous culture because they're going to contaminate you with thoughts and ideas potentially that are harmful to the Indian culture, to the Indian group. Right. So if, if you don't have a community that is, or, you know, friends who are also sort of on the outskirts sort of questioning, it's sort of a solo journey. And that was mine. I didn't have many people I, I was journeying with. Um, yeah. And the Western, the India and Western culture is such an interesting dynamic because with India, I mean, obviously, you know, India became a free country in the forties in the uh, and none of us grew up under colonial rule, but it's interesting to think that a lot of that trauma from our ancestors is almost handed down. And I think that plays into a lot of it. It's just that we hear the stories or we we read the books and it's almost like, you know, we feel that that sense of other, that sense of oppression in our, in our DNA. And that can really shape. And I think, and I'm sure you'll talk about this a little bit is that that probably plays a lot into the cultural distrust of psychotherapy is that it's a Western concept. And you've talked about this elsewhere, is that it's this not for not for us, basically, it's this Westerner thing. It's for the elite. It's for people who can afford, you know, four sessions a week of sitting on someone's couch, right? Yeah, right. And, and you know, everybody also in Indian society, we look to our family for that support system. We look to them as our own therapists within our family. And we don't look outside that realm thinking that maybe an unbiased perspective and third party can be really beneficial. So I think there's a huge block there. You know, we're from a family of four physicians. So 
highly educated family, but yet, you know, not even right now, but years ago, there was such a block and stigma with psychology and psychiatry and, you know, tremendous amount of labeling that occurred. And it wasn't even something that was said outright necessarily. It was just kind of embedded. Like you guys made a reference to our ancestors and how that came across oceans, all those kinds of beliefs to Western society growing up in this country. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other piece is that um, there, there is another angle of a mm -hmm. spiritual superiority where we were supposedly an ancient culture. So we, we know it all. But when I was living in India as an adult for seven years and, you know, going through my life, I realized that there was really an emotional block, mm -hmm. like a blind spot about the emotions. You know, Indians are brilliant intellectually and very spiritually, but in the emotional realm, that's where psychotherapy is so beautiful and powerful. And if we could bring everything together, you know, then it's, it's the best of both worlds. It's an East meets West. And I think yeah. I think that that's where we're all heading and we just need to set aside these other othering and like, what can we learn from each other and bring it home to ourselves? Because what's the point if a child commits suicide, you know, out of what is, what good is your family name or your status or. Yeah. Or where you, you know, went to I, college. If you right, went to what's really, school. Exactly. What's really important is your child's happiness important or how you look might look as a parent and, you know, the people you are looking to, to sort of give you approval. It's yep. so it's a very misplaced thing. And I think as generations go by, we will clear that. And I think another component is a lot of people who are suffering as well as their elders and loved ones are operating from a place of fear, pure fear. Yeah. Yeah. And so that really holds them back tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. And therapy saved my life. I will just, mm -hmm. it has, it was extraordinarily helpful because to be able to speak about things I hadn't spoken about and to be heard and listen and to be allowed to feel my emotions and not be, you know, the usual response of don't talk about it or, um, you know, we're, things are pushed under the rug. There's so much denial yeah. and we learn to repress our own feelings because it's not okay. But the permission to feel, I mean, it's, it's real health. And even science has proved the, the relationship between emotions and physical health, that when, when we suppress our emotions, we don't process them, then they live in our body and they, they turn into physical illness. So yeah, even from a scientific true. perspective, there's reason to do that. Yeah. And I mean, this even comes towards human sexuality, female sexuality. Absolutely. I, I remember, you know, being raised, it wasn't a very healthy household, but at the same time, you know, I was embarrassed by my body as a child, you know, because your body's developing and you think people are going to make You know, I started to wear baggy clothes to try to hide myself. And that's not, that's not good because that confidence and respect for myself and self-love is really lacking. So I feel like there's such a stigma with sexuality, talking about it, being open about it, that even it's, it's there to this day. It's, it's almost along the lines the same as with mental illness. Absolutely. It's a huge taboo. And that's a huge part of my work. Uh, it's been the, you know, the key reason for my trauma. And um, I don't 
understand why it is because sexuality is a life force. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of us would be wouldn't be here right. if our parents hadn't had sex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And, and and so you know what's it's if you just put a little thought behind it, what's wrong about it? You know, and, and what's so interesting about it also in Indian religion. I don't know if you've been to uh, Aurangabad, you know, and see the caves in Ajanta Ellora. It's literally right. like the uh, Metropolitan right. Museum of Sexuality. Literally. Yeah, exactly. You know, I laugh about it because this is this is so funny because uh, when we took a tour of the caves in Aurangabad back in 99, our tour guide was explaining to us that uh, they don't teach sex ed in schools in India. They just bring them to the caves and show them the, the different positions. <laughs> Which I'm like, okay, that's a little bit of a different uh, spin on it. But at the same time, I mean, just with the culture, you would think that it's so embedded in the fabric of, of you know who we are that it should be more widely discussed. And and I guess that kind of leads me into my in the next topic is, I mean, how is that dichotomy played out because in, in your life? Because, you know, you were raised in India. You came here when you were 16, went back for, uh, was it seven years? You said you were you were living in India. And there's been an interplay, I guess, going there and, and here and, and back. But the, the way I look at it is it's interesting because we are a, you know, we're our, our culture and our history is very, rich and deep in spirituality you know if you read the vedas if you read the upanishads if you read there's so many sadhus in the himalayas that have so much inherent wisdom and yet at the same time here when we come here it's just about push it's almost like we're pushing that aside Uh, it's not like i wouldn't say it's embarrassment necessarily but it's like we have to conform to this new normal which is very you know stiff upper lip very individualistic, you know, don't get too uh, caught up in the fray. I mean, how has that uh, played out in your life? And the reason I'm asking that is it sounds like now you're embracing it a lot more, but is that, um, you know, the spirituality, is that more of a recent construct? I've, I think we're all spiritual. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's just, we just, we just are, whether it's joy or beauty or play or, being in nature, we, we connect with that. That's just mm-hmm. who we are as human beings. And as a child, I, for me, Mother Earth was my spirituality. I just connected very deeply with, with trees and rocks and um, animals. And I felt just this resonance of the sacredness of, of all. It's, it's just something I knew. It was just normal to me. And the music, when I studied music, music was my my spirituality it's like i went into you know higher states and then sexuality too sexuality was very spiritual for me and that takes me back to to tantra which is really this ancient indian um, science and art Um, not just of not just the western tantra but indian tantra where everything is sacred and in that um, tradition, there is no dichotomy between the, the spiritual and the sexual. It is one. Everything, wow. the universe is born of desire and of the union of the masculine and the feminine. And every moment, everything that exists is in this constant dance and lovemaking and of, of 
desire and ecstasy. I and mean, that's just, at, if you get to the very core and the essence of being, that's who we are. And that is something that, you know, that I, something that I teach, but that's in India, but way, way back, which we've sort of pushed underground because it's taboo, because we're not allowed yeah. to talk about it. Um, but coming back to your question, yeah, I, and then, um, you know, I did study Vedanta for so several years. Um, mm. When I was taken back, I just, that was the path that was introduced to me. And I thought that's all there was. And it took me many years to realize how much that path was divorced from the body mm. and from the feminine and from sexuality, because it was very much about the head. It's very, it's a ascetic path. It's about transcending the body, leaving the earth. But there's another stream of um, in Hinduism, of which is Tantra, which is the feminine, which is everything is sacred, that nothing mm. is not sacred and embrace it here now and be, be it here now. Um, where there's no separation, nothing is taboo, nothing is wrong, nothing is bad, except our own judgments of it. So I think I've always been on a spiritual quest as a, as a student and just learning and have been fascinated by different um, religions. And I think you're right. When I first came here, I was like, nobody's talking about religion. Like in India, it was like the, in every shop you go, there's a little dia or agarbati or Right. flowers and there's prayers and you know just even in the speech it's like may god be with you and it's just must have been your past life it's just such a normal conversation right. embedded in the conversation right. right so it had to be put aside and it was it was strange for me um but i think now i've sort of integrated it back and reclaimed it yeah and what's what's interesting now and i always laugh about the concept of appropriation right because this is stuff that we've been exposed to basically right out of the womb about uh, meditation, about uh, sound, primordial sound meditation, about chanting the mantras and stuff. And now it's, it's just become this, uh, it's become this fad, you know, and it's, it's just, um, I, I think there was one example that was just, that just blew my mind where uh, I don't remember which company it was, but they actually had Ganesh sandals. They literally had sandals with a picture of Ganesh on the on the sand, you know, which was like so wrong on so many levels. But mm -hmm. I guess if I could back up a little bit, I wanted to understand because you know on your website uh, it talks about that uh, you practice holistic uh, psychotherapy. Um, can you take us a little bit through your journey as a psychotherapist? Uh, because it sounds like initially your practice was more centered around conventional modes of psychotherapy and it's evolved quite a bit since then or have you has it always been sort of the iteration that you're practicing currently like take us through a little bit of your yeah. journey with uh, holistic psychotherapy and what that means exactly holistic sure. Psychotherapy. sure um so i went to a school that was very mind body spirit which is mm -hmm. holistic and mm -hmm. that school was actually founded on sri aurobindo's philosophy so it was this perfect meeting of East-West where the school was based on these principles of mind, body, spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and it was called integral uh, psychology, which is really everything. Again, it's like nothing is left out. There's nothing that's not sacred. There's nothing that's not human and nothing mm -hmm. that's not to be valued. Um, so I start, I, it was as important to me to have a spiritual bent to the school I went with. So I didn't go to a traditional, 
you know, Western psychotherapy school. So right from the start, I, I did that. Sure. Um, and very soon after, um, it seemed like my work, I, I was taken both personally and professionally into new areas. Most of my, my clients didn't need medication. They were more high functioning, but they needed help with whether it's um, trauma or anxiety or depression or relationships or, and so on, a family, healing from family. Mm -hmm. um, so it was um, therapy in a deep sense of really let's get in, inside you and what's, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't CBT or surface therapy. It was more depth-oriented uh, therapy where, you know, where you really sort of understand what's an underlying um, cause for a uh, pattern or behavior, as well as self-exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and that grew very quickly into incorporating some spiritual work like past life regressions and energy healing. And, and then my work evolved into um, um, groups. So leading groups for women, women's empowerment groups, helping women find mm -hmm. their voice, find their power, their soul purpose, and so on. And because of my own journey, it, it's interesting how it's sort of been this dovetail with spirituality at the same sure. time where I started opening up to working with spirits or rather they started working with me, I'll say that. And right. it was, there were presences in the room where clients would say, we feel this or this is happening and kind of things which would, shifts would happen very quickly. And I don't even have words to say or or an explanation to say what's happening. But what I know for certain is that there is so much available to us, so much help available to us from this higher world um, mm -hmm. in the realm of healing, in, in every realm, actually, that if we're open, they are able to come in and, and help us and work with us. So that um, developing that relationship started occurring. And so my work is now, then it uh, opened up into sound. I was guided mm -hmm. to start using sound with the balls and voice. And that was an exponential shift because once people's mm -hmm. huge shifts started happening with sound and things people would, that would take people, you know, three or five years within three to six months, they would move through it. So it was the work really accelerated and much more was possible. And that led me to realize, you know, this one-on-one -on -one work is great. But what I really began to see with the power of sound is that it is so simple and so effective. And to me, it hit that spot of, I don't want healing to be only for the elite and the privileged. Mm. Mm -hmm. That with sound, I, I saw a way for everybody to receive healing for free. Um, or at least, or at a very, very minimal rate. But, and I was, you know, always I'm thinking India. I always have like, how do you, how would I help the people I've grown up with who, who didn't have, you know, I've always held that uh, people who haven't had access to therapy or don't even know what therapy is. Bringing where, it to where do women, yeah. and, you know, my work with, like, where, how, and so with sound, I found the answer that it is a, a, a very powerful modality which I think transcends the whole cultural and religious barriers, which is very exciting. That it doesn't matter. You don't have to believe anything. You're not, there's no dogma, there's no teaching. You just experience it. And mm -hmm. East, West, 
whatever, whomever you are, you feel it and you can receive the benefits. So that got me really, really excited about sound and vibrational healing in general. Do you find that people are starting to be more open and they're evolving to these types of therapies or are they yeah. really just stuck into the traditional side of things? I think, I, th I think it's, it's moving really fast. I feel like the world is just accelerating, especially with the pandemic. I think mm -hmm. people have been confronted with, you know, maybe I don't need to think this way and maybe I can open up to something new. And with sound, there is no barrier. So I think it's uh, a lot of people are embracing alternative healing, which, which sound is. So, you know, when I helped Nikhil and I helped save his life and everything, I had my own epiphany and I realized it was the most beautiful feeling in the world to help another human being. Whether he was going to be my husband for the future or not, time would tell. But at that moment in time, I just, I felt such gratitude and such joy in his well-being and his ability to come back from all this with my help as well as with his own drive. And so I really told myself at that point, you know, I want to go into healthcare and I want to help other people. I want to find a way. And it's amazing because when the timing is right, your universe is, they, people just come in your path. They come in your path and you don't even know it's coming and you're not even looking for it. And it just happens. And it sometimes happens so quickly and easily and seamlessly. <laughs> and, you know, I met the CEO of the company of Geostar and we are very close. We're like family at this point in time. I met uh, the chief uh, scientific officer and they're just the most wonderful people, humanitarians. And so then I started talking about launching the center in Chicago and start helping people through the use of their own stem cells with a lot of these degenerative conditions, you know, for example, with like Lyme disease and things like that. And so I've really kind of, we've evolved the center in really sort of understanding and starting to embrace even other holistic approaches to healing and other modalities when it comes to mental illnesses, like with, you know, Nikhil's situation and bipolar disorder or depression. Also, when it comes to sort of a lot of these degenerative conditions, you know, there's Ayurveda. And so that's starting to come about and people are starting to really respect that. There's psychedelics with, you know, uh, mental illness and mental conditions. And so that is kind of my evolution. And I feel like sometimes, as you would know, when you endure such hardship and pain, and you're in that moment, you're going through everything and you don't even, it, it's very hard to look beyond the pain at the moment. And you're always wondering, at least I was, why is this happening to me? I played my cards right. I did all these things. I tried to be a good person. I, you know, why? And you never realize it until later that answer appears. It's such a powerful story. Such a powerful story. Thank you. Yeah. I love what you said about there's no better feeling than helping people. Yeah. I mean, you were born for this then. <laughs> One of the things. So I got Lyme just out of the blue. I was sitting with a client and just had these horrific symptoms, just like, like a switch got turned on. And I didn't know what it was, what hit me. And um, I consulted with a Lyme specialist and just changed everything, you know, my diet and was doing these herbs and all kinds of, I mean, I was in the Bay Area, so everything I threw the kitchen sink at it, 
homeopathy and um, and I also being a therapist, I also knew, I'm also coming from India. I knew there was always a root cause to the physical illness, which is not physical. So I did my emotional work around mm. it. And what I arrived at was that I wasn't in my power as a woman, that I had always sort of been a people pleaser serving, you know, whether it was my husband or the family, like I was sort of bowing to somebody other, but I wasn't in my power. And once I got that, it was like a light bulb went off for me. And it's like, when I heal that, or at least if I go in the direction of healing that, this mm -hmm. will clear. I just knew it. It was crystal clear to me. And um, But as part of that, I went to a center in Brazil, which I've shared with you about. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a spiritual healing center where, and in Brazil, it's um, there's a there's a there's a tradition called spiritism where it's it's mm. very common that um, doctors work with mental health people work with the the mediums. They, in fact, they have the three buildings in the same compound where they all treat the same patient on different levels, and it's it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm. Um, but there, I was my symptoms went away in. The worst symptoms went away in two days. And after wow. a year, I was my Lyme doctor said, don't come back and see me. It's because he said, you're, you're done. Just take these herbs for a few. And my symptoms really, really went to reduce. So and how long, how long had you been living with Lyme disease at that point? Three months with really okay. intensive yeah. um, symptoms. Um, it was like almost hard to function. It was really severe, wow. debilitating. Um, so it was radical for me. And also it, I received this emotional healing and that opened my eyes to, there is another way for all of us beyond what we know of Western medicine, beyond what even I know of Indian medicine, of Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. It's like this, this thing with the spiritual realm was eye opening. And, you know, and at that center, people were being cured of cancer, people, who wow. couldn't walk, could walk again. People, all emotional issues, depression, um, alcohol, dr drug recovery, um, all different kinds of things were, were being, being cleared. And um, so I went back every couple of years. And of course, I got tremendous healing, but I was also sort of being opened to the possibilities of spiritual healing. And that was that's where i'm at now and since then i have evolved to um becoming a channel which is it's still a little hard for me to say that but there but these these are very real things and i think indigenous cultures are, are not these are not alien to indigenous cultures it was uh it was really an extraordinary experience and this is some this is this is common in brazil like it's, it's very it's a very known um, thing that you can go to a medium and they work with beings on the who are have passed who, who are helping beings coming to help or provide guidance and you know it's not always going to be like a wave of the wand like it sort of was sure. for me but it means a lifestyle change it means you know addressing the emotional issues it means your emotional work so whether it's um you know really sort of taking ownership and responsibility for your, for yourself, for your health, for your life, um, you know, within relationships, is there, you know, what needs to happen there? For me, I had to sort of forgive, forgive, yeah. you know, what, 
my experience. And those, those are very key. I think of those are very key links to physical health. And, um, and when we do that, when we're ready to do the work and when we ask for support, that's when it's given. It's not sort of we say, you know, late, sit back and say it's done for us. It's never just done for us, but we have to be willing to, to put in our bit. It's difficult because, you know, people are not necessarily motivated to do the work and they're not humble enough necessarily to look at the emotional component of their disease and how that really plays a role. Right. So and getting past that barrier and somebody really understanding that is probably really huge for when you see a lot of your clients. And everything, I'm sure. Yeah, it is. And, and I've, and, you know, the people who come to see me are also sort of mind, body, spirit. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. do CBT and those kinds of things. So they're very open. Mm -hmm. So, and they've been- what are, what are some of the, what are some of the common um, ailments or conditions or situations? What is the most common type of profile of the uh, clients you're working with? Um, well, I've had a lot, many women come to me and men come to me for, for trauma. So mm -hmm. I use a, a modality called EMDR, which is a psychotherapeutic mm -hmm. modality, and that's that's been really powerful for them. Um, I've also had uh, women come for anxiety or depression or um, struggles with their families or and also just personal growth. People just come for personal growth. It's not it's never just something's wrong, but it's like I really want to grow. I want to I want I know there's a better life for me. Um, mm -hmm. So now my work has sort of shifted a little bit more into that, but it doesn't mean that there isn't um, healing because I think of transformation, there's always a healing component as, as we grow. So, mm -hmm. um, um, so th but those just in the psychotherapy, that's been what they've come for. And people have come with physical illnesses as well and wanting to know what is the underlying cause. So in that, there, there comes saying they're, they're people who are ready to, to look at the emotional cause. And so then mm -hmm. we can really dive really deep and uncover and heal those, those, those root causes. And invariably, um, there's a change, there's a shift um, because it's all connected. It's sure. all connected. And you're right that it's, it's, it is hard. It takes a lot of courage and a commitment it's much easier to say, oh, I wish I could just take a pill yeah, or an herb, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or even exercise, you know, but that emotional work is harder. It is much harder. And, but it's so powerful. And once I started adding sound, then it became a very supportive experience as well, where it was, it was like sound just sort of, it's like a wind. It would move things through faster. They didn't have to work as hard. And so I found that to be extremely beneficial. How, how has your work been received by some traditional allopathic doctors or just Western uh, physicians? I'm just curious because with us, you know, with stem cells, I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag. There are some physicians who are a little bit more progressive, more enlightened, and they're willing to give it a second look. A lot of them just sort of turn up their noses and say, oh, where are the Where's the data? Where are the clinical trials? This is all just a placebo. In your experience, like with psychiatrists or clinical therapists, what what is the general feedback you're getting from that community for for your uh, for your practice? Well, I I don't think we'll quite understand it. Hmm. You know, I mean, 
mean, I have worked occasionally from now and then with, with psychiatrists for with, um, you know, with some of my clients. Um, but in all honesty, I don't share when I know that somebody's not open. It's, 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 mm. it's, that's not the point. Those are not the people I'm trying to reach. I'm not trying to convince sure. anyone. I'm just here for the people who are open and ready to receive what I do. So um, I'm here to educate if somebody is open. But mm -hmm. if they're not, it's, it's just a waste of time and energy. So what would you say if you could talk to your 22-year-old self? <laughs> Don't get on that plane. <laughs> <laughs> Miss that flight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I think I would tell her specifically about that experience. I would tell her that her sexuality is one of the most beautiful things about her and that she owns her sexuality and no one else has a right to tell her what to do with her body, who she's with or her life. That to, to, that she has a right to choose herself and nobody else needs to get in the way or should get in the way. And if they do, to just walk away, run, run. <laughs> and that feeling shame doesn't mean that she's shameful. Big difference. Big difference. Feeling guilt doesn't mean she's guilty because there's so much of cultural, you feel guilt. And, and I, I didn't have that differentiation then. So those two things I would, I would say. And once, once being taken back, I would just say, Trust what you know and love, and don't listen to the others. Trust your intuition. Trust what you what yeah, and don't listen to what others try to tell you, because your way is your own way, and only you can live your life. Nobody can else has even knows what your life should be like, or you know, or you are you are the liver of your own life, and so don't listen to others' voices or dog ones and yeah. speak up speak up speak up <laughs> one of your really powerful uh statements or advice is that you know you talked about the how important it is uh to choose yourself uh, can you talk a little bit about how you've applied that to your life sort of and your your evolution with that phrase you know because obviously this isn't something that you've necessarily adhered to all your life uh and a lot of that is owed to the patriarchy and subservience that we've talked about. But can you talk about how you've applied that choose yourself philosophy to your life and also maybe how listeners can apply this perspective to their own life? Sure. Um, so I grew up with parents who were very, very strict. And my mother is a narcissist. So mm -hmm. that, what that means is that everything was about her. And so I grew up thinking love was pleasing her and taking care of her and giving her what she needed, but nobody was really taking care of my, of what I needed emotionally, school and food and all of that. Yes. But, um, on a deeper level that wasn't there. Um, so I didn't know how to choose myself. I, I sort of grew up as a people pleaser and a caretaker mm -hmm. that to me, I defined that as love. And so when I did get married to at 24 to an Indian man, I just, that's the pattern I fell into. I thought love meant, you know, his ambitions were more important than mine and, you know, three meals a day on the table. And it's just, it was sort of this formula. I, I sort Living of a template, into. according to mm -hmm. a, a template, basically. Yeah. Right. But when I left, 
left the marriage, when I, I started questioning because I wasn't unhappy. And I would say to listeners, if you're not happy, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling like something's not quite right, or you feel on some deep level, there's got to be more to life than what I'm living now. Then begin to question everything. <laughs> mm. You know, question what you've been told, question the beliefs you've been grown up with, question who's been telling you what to do or what not to do, what you should do, mm. and what, what you're supposed to do, you know, question all the formula formula that you've been given about what your life is to be like mm -hmm. and take some time to really sit with yourself and ask yourself what's important to me what does my heart want what does mm -hmm. my body want what makes me happy what makes me excited what makes me feel alive and what did i remember love to i love to do as a child and to get in touch with that joy, that freedom, mm -hmm. um, it might be a very different path of life than where you are. And life does that. It kind of takes us on detours or down wrong turns. And But sure. it's just a detour. You can always get back. And But you, the answers are always within. So if, if somebody who's listening is, is a people pleaser or a caretaker, Choose yourself and start with small things. You know, it might be just giving yourself 15 minutes or half an hour a day to do something you love. Like maybe it's to mm -hmm. paint or hike where you want to go or, you know, do something just, just for you. And once you start giving to yourself as opposed to giving to others, that's food for yourself. It's nourishment for yourself. And when you nourish yourself, you're nourishing your body, you're nourishing your soul, you nourish your spirit. And that's when, you, that's when you get happy. And when you follow that, just keep following that, adding to that, and start mm -hmm. surrounding yourself with people who want you to be happy, who want you to succeed, who want you to have the best life that you want for yourself, not what they think you should have. <laughs> it's choosing us, especially, I think, women from South Asian cultures, it's like, we're sort of indoctrinated with you're supposed to give your life for for some other cause, but no, we mm -hmm. or, or or mothers or mm -hmm. there's so many ways we don't choose ourselves or we betray ourselves. Maybe it's a work we don't want to do, but we think we're supposed to do, right? I mean, I was just going to say relationships are such a vital piece of this because in my experience personally, I could be on all the right medication. You know, I could have the best cognitive therapist, but if I come home and I'm being, and I'm continuing to subject myself to those toxic messages. And I'm continuing to adhere to that false narrative that my worth is defined by uh, what is on my business card, or my worth is defined by how many trophies my kids racked up. Then all the medication and all the therapy in the world is going to be for naught. There's just, there's really no value. And I think there's no you know, if we were to look at a pie chart in terms of like which piece of the pie is most important, I don't have a magic formula, but I would say they're all part of that same success formula. They all have to be in place. It's just, and, and you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you've been able to find that, uh, you know, find peace and healing in, in the relationships that, uh, that you've cultivated. Yeah.
Um, Thank you. And you know, you have so much wisdom, and I think it's just so enlightening to to hear you talk. Um, and there's just so much uh, resonance and alignment there with what we're all talking about. But I wanted to understand what what has been helpful for you in terms of teachers that you've found a lot of value in, in terms of their, you know, in terms of their messages, in terms of what wisdom they're imparting. Maybe if you could share some books or um, insights that you've gleaned from some of the teachers and, and authors and, and other wise folk. Well, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, when I was, um, you know, studying to become a therapist, and I was just, I was really torn up inside because I had spent so many years sort of thinking my body and sexuality were bad after being taken back to India. Mm. And I remember reading Sri Aurobindo and he, his was the first spiritual book that talked about Tantra because mm. I had always heard Tantra is bad. Don't even, you know, read it. And so it was just this. Taboo. Uh, bo- yeah. It was just, and, and opening up to anything that sort of affirms your body, body positive, sexual positive, I think, because a woman's power comes from her sexuality, from her womb. And affirming that is so important to us. Um, so that was, that was, those readings I remember is really valuable. Um, of course, most of my psychotherapy um, readings were, were just great, just such, so I just drank them and so I so soaked them up. Um, there's one book in particular, Drama of the Gifted Child, that I loved, which really helped me see that how much parents put put on children and how much the child is not seen, but is sort of forced, whether it's overtly or covertly in subtle ways, to become who the parent wants the child to become. I think it's Alice Miller. Okay. I, I'm not 100% out. sure, but Drama of the Gifted Child is the title. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another right. book... Um, Finding the True Self, which is which is another book, like Finding Who You Truly Are, which is a really good book. Um, Tell us about your book. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I want to <laughs> add a title to this called Brown Skin Girl that you might be familiar with. So Gosh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that one. Well, that's my memoir. So it's my journey um, in black and white of... Um, you know, from from childhood to to where I am today, and um, it's it's a journey of trauma. Yet it's a journey it's a journey of triumph of of healing, um, and it's a journey of an Indian woman. And what what I experienced as as an Indian woman, um, you know, the goodness of education and the, that privilege of that, but also uh, the 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 extreme shaming and and treatment um, of that and. I think what you talked about of breaking free, breaking free from patriarchy, from family, mm-hmm. choosing myself. And I think that is our power. When we choose ourselves outside the conditioning, when we really listen to ourselves uniquely, because we're completely unique. Sometimes, I think education sometimes makes us become, can make us like, you know, be very formulaic, but mm-hmm. following who we are is, is, um, is so choosing myself and my my path to healing and finding love again um yeah so and i think i see it now on our (laughs) on the the banner you have like i thought of myself as a broken woman 
I just really didn't mm. think of myself as that way. But I think it was, you know, reclaiming, and I don't mean external beauty, but like feeling beautiful on the inside. Um, that is something every woman deserves to feel. I think I just want to say to people that, you know, the divisions that we're often given of culture, of religion, of gender, of politics, you know, they're just man-made divisions because essentially we're all human beings. If we were to sit down with almost any person perhaps and just get to know them, you know, there is so much, we're all beautiful and nothing and no one should keep you from knowing how beautiful you are, how powerful you are, how amazing you are. And there's always a way out, however dark a space may be, however challenging a space may be, there is hope, there is help. And especially in this time where there's so much available on the internet and people and possibilities, um, there is a way. And above all, within, within yourself and your spirit, um, that part of you knows how to find its way out and through. This has just been an incredible experience talking to you and you have just tremendous amount of wisdom. And I, I find your whole in story, your whole story, just such a beautiful, inspiring journey that I hope people read your book and can learn from you um, as you have evolved and grown into this incredible person who was always there, even in her 22-year-old self, but just didn't come out quite yet. So, um, you know, I, I really hope people open their eyes and ears to what you're doing and we really appreciate everything that you're doing for society today and how you're making such a difference in people's lives. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's beautiful to hear here. And I thank you both so much for having me. And I just love what you're doing and um, the change that you're creating and all that you're giving people. So it's been a delight to speak with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Um, so I have put up here on the screen, these are the two websites that uh, people, if they're interested, they can find out more information about you and, and the services you provide. Uh, is that the best way for people to engage with you or is there any other, yeah. are you on different social media channels or is this probably the best way to, to connect can, with you? Either way, my websites and the social media um, information on the website. So either way they can reach out to me. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And you are in uh, Portland, Oregon. So not yes. right now you're in, uh, yes. you're in Hawaii and we're all yes. very jealous, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, during, uh, during the most of the year you are in, uh, in Portland. So. Portland. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks so much, my Trey. It was so wonderful talking to you and I'm sure our listeners, this will really resonate with so many of our, uh, audience. So we're really so grateful to you for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you.